Well, uh, Arthur Roche had this to say about worry. Worry is a, a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. So I want to ask you, what's draining your thoughts right now? What's draining your thoughts right now? Perhaps it started out with this little worry, this little fear, and then now it's turned into this raging river of anxiety that is consuming your mind and taking over your living where you just feel like your head is barely even staying above water. Well, if that's you, you're not alone. We have been going through this series where we've been studying one of the most famous verses in the uh, New Testament. It's written in Philippians 4, where a guy named Paul says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything or be anxious for nothing. And the question that we've been talking about and asking, is this even possible? Is this something that we're even capable of doing, being anxious about nothing at all? And though we've said consistently throughout the series that Paul, he was actually writing this in the present active sense, talking about how we don't need to carry and be anxious on our day-to-day activities and every occasion that we're in. Paul is saying that, that the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, but the prison of anxiety is optional. And so we've been unpacking about this, about how God has given us an antidote for anxiety. And we find that in Philippians 4, 4 through 8, these five verses that we've been walking through. I hope some of you have actually taken the time to memorize this, but I'm going to throw it up here on the screen, and we're going to at least go through the first uh, couple verses. It says, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice, always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when I attended uh, undergrad school, I went to a school called Hope International University or Pacific Christian College, and I had a professor there. Uh, Dr. Nofel Staten. He was one of my favorite professors, one of my first theology teachers. He had this thick European accent, this older guy with a beard, and he would just be impassioned about what he taught. I remember one of my first classes, he had props, and he jumped up on a table, and he really made the Bible come to life. But one of the accolades that he would share with us that he was most proud of and had so many examples from was when he actually, in his previous career, worked as an air traffic controller. In fact, he was the lead air traffic controller at one of the the busiest airports in the United States, Chicago O'Hare Airport, where there'd be over a million flights a year and thousands of flights that would come in every day. So talk about the stress and the anxiety and the chaos where you're managing split-second decisions as you're deciding what plane is going to go which direction, which ones get to land and which ones don't, where there's literally thousands of lives on the line based on your decision. You get to control which planes are permitted to land, and your decisions actually have life and death implications. And what Paul's going to tell us here today is and the same is actually true with anxiety. So what I mean, there are thousands of thoughts that come into our mental airspace every single day. And there's some of us, as I just pause for a moment, some of us that it gets so ill with us that we actually need to seek professional help. 
Just like we may hurt another part of our body or our body gets ill, our brain can get ill as well. And it's no shame. There is no shame in going and getting medical help. But we have thousands of thoughts that come into our mental airspace every single day. And all of us, all of us have to become air traffic controllers to control which thoughts you allow to land. Because whatever thoughts that you allow to your mind will determine the direction of your life. Now, some of you are thinking, but I don't get to control. Like, I don't get to control every thought that pops in my head. Nobody does. Nobody gets to control that. Well, an air traffic controller doesn't actually get to control every flight that's trying to come in, but it does have the power over which one gets to land. And Paul wants us to know the same thing about our anxious thoughts. So here's the big idea for today. You don't control every thought that flies in your mind, but you do control which ones you allow to land. Watch what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, as we wrap this up. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, this is the the last part of how we're dealing with this anxiety. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about This um, word, think about, the Greek word for it is logizomai. Guess what uh, English word we get from that? Logic or logical, to, to reason. And so Paul is saying to us that you have to use logic and reason to battle anxiety and that there's actually a way to do this. Now, hang with me because I'm gonna get a little technical real quick. I'm gonna try to sound smart ish. Um, But I think it's important for us to understand, to get what Paul's telling us to do in this situation when it comes to our anxiety, we need to understand um, some things. So in very simplistic terms, I want to talk to you about um, what neurologists do who study the brain. So they study the brain, they tell us that there's a couple things. They tell us that there's a section of our mind that's actually driven by emotion, and then there's a separate part of our brain that is um, driven by logic and um, understanding things. The main part of our brain that controls emotion is called the amygdala, the amygdala, right here. And it's this small little guy right deep with inside of your brain. And this is a powerful but very small section of your brain. Now, the main part of your brain that actually controls logic and reason is called the prefrontal cortex right up here. So you have the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, and they're located here separately. One's real small, one's really big, but these two parts of the brain were actually made to talk and work together. This is how God designed us to work. So this is how this works. Real life example. Um, I like to scare people. I don't know, it's just something I've always done. I like scaring people. I like scaring my kids. I like scaring my wife. I scare staff members all the time. They hate it. I mean, it's a weekly thing of sneaking up and scaring people, and I think it's like the best thing ever, and I am thankful there hasn't been retribution. That's too much. But 
I even have done like scare school for my kids because my kids are like, you gotta teach us how to scare people like you scare people. And I'm like, let's do this. And so we've had like sit down. I will tell you right now, my five-year-old is the only one out of my kids that's actually scared me. And he was so pumped when he did. He like ran up and told the rest of them and they were like devastated that the five-year-old got me. He's the only one in the house that's gotten me. Okay, so what happens when you get scared, when someone jumps out and scares you, and I get to jump out and be like, Rah, and scare you. Well, the amygdala releases all sorts of signals and chemicals, and it says, fight or flight, right? Now, the, the problem is, is that your amygdala, it's not objectional. It has one primary goal. It's to protect, right? So what happens then is the prefrontal vortex right up here kicks in and says logic. Is this a real monster that's going to get me? Or, oh, that's just my dumb husband that's trying to scare me again, right? It's the thing that tells you this. So this logical part of our brain regulates the emotional part of our brain, and they talk back and forth to each other, and this is how God designed them to work together. Another example would be if you go to the zoo and you see this huge snake, right? You don't freak out because the logical part of your brain tells you that there's glass between you and the snake, and it can't get you. Now, listen to this very carefully. Fear and anxiety both trigger the amygdala and what it releases, these chemicals to fight or to flight. But there's a difference. We need to remember that fear, it sees a threat and reacts, like it sees a rattlesnake or a snake and it runs away. But anxiety imagines there's a threat and it cannot move on. It can't move past it. There might be a snake in the grass out there, so I won't go out there. Uh, fear is designed to put in this temporary state of, of fight or flight. When we get away from the snake, then we go, okay, I'm away from the snake. I don't have to freak out anymore. But the problem with anxiety is, is if we allow those thoughts to linger, it can put us in this constant state of fight or flight. Neuroscientists uh, Dr. Carolyn Leaf has studied this extensively, just like many others have, and tells us that chemically what's taking place over time is the emotional sides of our brain begin creating neurological pathways to make it harder for the logical part of our brains to kick in. Making it harder for the logical parts of our brains to kick in. Our anxiety can begin to literally rewrite our minds. And what happens to so many of us, just like our bodies, when we don't work out our muscles, our muscles atrophy. It's the same way. If you don't retrain our minds, it atrophies. So your mind is pliable. It's called neuroplasticity, right? The study shows that we can actually learn, retrain, and rewire our brain. So what Paul is telling us here in Philippians 4.8 is that you have to retrain your mind to become a better air traffic controller of your mind. You have to think about what you think about. And listen to this. Not every thought is worth thinking about. So how should I begin retraining my mind, Paul? That's what we would ask. So Paul says, well, here's your list. Do this. Think about whatever is true, not imaginary. Whatever is noble, worthy of thinking about and holy. Whatever is right, consistent with God's word. Whatever is pure and wholesome. 
whatever is lovely and pleasing to think about, whatever is admirable, worthy of my thoughts, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, we need to think about such things. The uh, New King James Version, a translation of the Bible, actually uses the word meditate. I like that word because Paul is saying to fight anxiety, this is what we have to do. To fight anxiety, we need to go from anxiety to a word that we've been spelling it called calm. In the first week as we went through this series, we, need, we learned that we need to celebrate who God is, that we need to stand in his goodness and his control and rejoice that he's Lord, he's owner, he's master, and that he is near. Then we learned that we need to ask God for help that we have to ask God for help through prayer and petition and specific request to seek God and ask him for help. Last week, we learned that we need to list what we're thankful for, that we need to physically make a list of the things and give thanksgiving for the things that we have, that anxiety goes down as our thanksgiving goes up. And this week, we're gonna finish this off with that we need to meditate on what is good. Now let's talk about this word meditation for just a moment. I think it's really misunderstood. There's tons of stuff written out there about different types of uh, meditation. People practicing different forms of it, maybe some of form of mindfulness or breathing exercises or stretching or my wife's favorite naps. Um, see, uh, uh, Eastern meditation actually um, teaches people the purpose of meditation is actually to empty your mind. But when the Bible talks about meditation, it's talking about, not talking about getting your hamstrings in like a weird position that's really uncomfortable and and humming and emptying your mind. Rather, every verse you find on meditation and that's related to meditation in the Bible actually tells us that we're instructed to fill our minds. Fill our minds with Good stuff, real stuff, positive stuff, eternal stuff, life-giving stuff, principles, life-challenging perspectives that we get to dwell on and chew on and hide in our heart and memorize and revisit and then chew on it again. Here's the last part of this passage again. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about such things. Fill your mind. Fill your mind. Meditate about these kinds of things. If you want to walk in a new and a better direction in your life, then you have to download a new playlist sometimes. You just gotta download some new things. You need to get some new things that are true, some new noble things, some right things, some pure things, some lovely things in your playlist if you wanna head a new direction. You see, if, if you can influence thinking, then you can influence your behavior. Because this, the way that we live is always a reflection of the way that we think. Scripture says a person thinks in their heart, and so they are. What makes you and me the way that we are is actually the way that we think. So true change always really begins in our mind. Now, we're not talking about like the power of positive thinking, you know, like a motivational speaker here. I'm not going to get all crest farly on you right now with my jacket. I like this jacket. But honestly, 
Negative thoughts, friends, cannot lead to a positive life. When we're stuck that way, it's just like when you put the batteries up down on a flashlight. The light's not going to come on. It's not going to give you good results. And people who really shine are people who think about positive things. And when we, when we see this a bunch, um, all throughout Scripture, we look at things like what Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans 12, too. He says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. To battle anxiety, you don't empty your mind. You fill it. You fill it with what is good. NASCAR drivers, NASCAR drivers are really, uh, you know, like particular about what kind of fuel they put in their cars. Um, Pilots are pretty particular about what kind of fuel they put in their jets. Um, Athletes, like myself, are really disciplined about what we put into our bodies, right, and how we treat that, what kind of fuel goes in. But many of us actually forget that principle, friends, when it comes to our mind. We feed our mind a lot of junk food. We feed it a lot of junk food. And when I feed my mind junk food, a steady diet of it, it always keeps me from being all that I can. The old adage is, is junk in, junk out, right? When I'm feeding my mind pornographic images or, you know, TV shows, it does something to the way that I view other people or the way that I see relationships. If I'm always thumbing through magazines or scrolling through my various feeds, looking at celebrities or those who live the rich and famous lifestyle, it messes up my contentment factor, makes uh, me insecure in my own skin or skews my perspective on the importance of stuff. Listen to me, whether it's movies, music, conversations, jokes, video games, social media, those political opinion shows, we have to be careful what we're constantly putting in our mind. I've actually personally distanced myself from relationships or even like groups text messages because it just became this like bantering place for, you know, like satire and weird jokes that just weren't actually doing anything for me, weren't encouraging me, weren't helping my mind. It was just feeding it junk. So I want to show you that scripture again. Philippians 4.8 says this, finally, brothers and sisters, notice how I emphasize whatever. Whatever is true. Whatever is noble. Whatever is right. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I emphasize the word whatever for a reason. Did you know that you're free to think about whatever, that you're free to think about whatever is true, whatever, whatever you see is lovely or noble, whatever is pure. There is lots of true things in life, good, noble things that fill our minds with good stuff. Whether it's a a great piece of music that you get to listen to, it sends you into a place of relaxation where you can just enjoy the music that you're listening to and the emotions that come from that and how it fills up your soul. Or maybe it's a a sunset over the ocean 
and the colors as they shift and they change. It may be the loveliest thing that you've ever laid your eyes on or the way that the sun sparkles on the water. Or maybe it's somebody holding a newborn baby. Holding a a newborn may fill your mind with truth and goodness and humanity. Or maybe somebody reading a good book. Reading a good book that gets lost in this like great novel and this narrative. Or somebody crying in a movie. Watching a great movie may bring you to tears. You didn't know this is what you look like when you watch a great movie crying, did you? Oh, that's what some of you actually look like. It's one or the other, right? Might inspire your mind, but here's what we learn about meditating when it comes to scripture and the goodness and understanding of who God is. One of the the most beautiful pictures that I can think of is reframing our mind reframing and retraining and deciding what lands in our head when it comes to Jesus's view of us. There's a, an infamous story, a crazy story, a, a miracle story, where Jesus walks on water. And in fact, another guy walks on water too. His name's Peter. And here's kind of the scene. There is these 12 guys that have been hanging out with Jesus for a while, and I really think he's got a little bit of a nickname for him. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. It's always Jesus to this group of people, not the broad crowd. He calls them little faithers when they did something. Oh, you little faith, little faith, little faith. And in this scene that we find ourselves in, it's the middle of the night. These men are rowing to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is not with them. He's gone off to the side, the hillside to pray after they just got done feeding thousands of people dinner. And he said, go off onto the other side. And they're like, how are you going to get there with us? And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. And so they're just like, I think, learning at this time, like, okay, Jesus, we, we're so confused all the time by you. And they go, and they take off through the night, and they're rowing. And it says that the wind was against them. I don't know how many of you have ever been out in the water when the wind is up against you. I mean, it's messy. It's cold. The water's hitting you. You know, you're kind of all over the place. And you need to also imagine that this boat wasn't some little small, tiny boat. This is a large boat that a lot of people could fit in. So it was probably six to eight feet up off of the water. So they're straining at the oars now because the wind is against them to get to the side. And there's not a whole lot of fear in the midst of this because a lot of them were fishermen. This was when they would fish. So this was kind of a normality to them. It's not like, ooh, it's scary. It's night out in the water. They understood the conditions. Well, in the midst of this, we're told that something is walking out towards them and it happens to be Jesus. And it scared them and they're like, oh, ghost, what is that? And he said, don't fear, it's me. I think he said one of the most powerful words and this is an entirely another conversation, but he just gave him an invitation. It was really simple. He just said, when Peter said, if it's you, tell me to come. And it's one of the best one-liners ever. And he just said this, come. That was it. And so Peter, you know, is in a situation now where he's a nut. He's, I don't even know if I would have done it, but he starts to get off the boat and he hangs over the edge, I'm sure. And it's not like he just hops in and stands on the water. But, you know, you got to imagine he's like hanging onto the edge. And everyone's like, what are you doing? And he's going, well, what do you want me to do? Like, my rabbi just told me to come. Like, that's what you do. Like, you're following in his footsteps. Like, you're supposed to be dusty because you're so close up behind him. And so, like, he's out there in the water. And so I'm going to try to figure out how to go. And so all of a sudden he finds himself, it says, standing and walking on water, and he begins to walk towards Jesus. Then it says that he starts to notice the wind and the waves that are splashing around, which all throughout Scripture, 
Water represents chaos in our lives. That's its imagery. So he starts to recognize the chaos, the stuff, the distractions, the the thousand different thoughts that are coming into his mind, and he begins to get distracted. And he starts letting something else land other than Jesus. And so it says he begins to sink, and he cries out to his rabbi, to, to Jesus, and he says, help me, save me. Jesus reaches out his hand, and he begins to lift him up, and he says, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, in a meditative spirit, I actually want to ask you to close your eyes right now, wherever you're at, and I want you to picture that scene right there. I want you to picture like you're Peter, and you're looking up now, your hands reached out, Jesus has got a hold of your hand. What does his face look like when he's saying, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Is is the wind blowing his hair? Is it dripping wet? Does he have a furrow in his brow? Is he shaking his head? What does his face look like when he says this to you? Now, if we were going to focus on whatever is true, whatever is lovely, admirable, all of those good things, can we see Jesus as we meditate on those things in this disappointed, I'm angry with you, this is unbelievable, how are we finding ourselves here again, why can't you control your thoughts, place? Like often we do, just another disappointed dad. Ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Give me a break. I think though that when we think of these things that are praiseworthy and everything that represents who God is, that he is lovely, that he is full of joy, kindness, gentleness, that he's a good, good father, that we can look at him and just like a child would jump off the edge of a pool or would start to walk for the first time, that he's sitting there and he says, come, right? He says, come. And Peter starts doing the wobbly walk, right? He's going out there and going, look at what I'm doing. And then the chaos of everything else starts popping through. I'm going to fall over. There's a, this is going on. You know, the dog's over there. All the different things that are going on. I might die, all of it, right? It starts to go down and starts to do the stumble forward. And what do you do? Or what does a, a father do or a mother do? They run, they scoop up. And do they say like, oh, give me a break. You didn't even do it. You didn't see. You didn't even think you could do it. And you did it, right? But no, they scoop him up and they says, oh my gosh, look at what you just did. You just walked on water. You just walked on the ground. You of little faith, why did you doubt that you could do that? Look what you can do. You can control these things spiritually, the spiritual side of yourselves and what you're putting into your mind, what you're thinking about. You can decide if they're lies or they're truth. And that's the beautiful part about when we look at scripture. This is a crazy statistic from the Harvard Review said that it takes six positive comments to someone to make up for every one negative. So if you're feeling that, you know what you need to start doing? Scooping up all the good thoughts, thinking about such things that are good and you got some work to do. That's the reality of it. You know, it takes 
40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of maple syrup, but it is rich and it is sweet and there is beauty that comes from the ashes in the midst of that and can come for you too. So I want to read you just as we end our time with you today, just some lies that we tell ourselves, but the truth in scripture that can just be spoken over you, spoken over me and spoken over us as we continue to move from anxiety to calm. The lies tell us, I am so weak. Truth, scripture says, when I am weak, he makes me strong. Or his strength is shown in my weakness. The lie is, I will always be alone. Truth, he will never leave me or forsake me. The lie is, I'm worthless. But the truth is, You are called a child of God. Identity is in Christ alone. The lie is, I didn't didn't have a good father or a mother. I'll never be a perfect parent. The truth is, your kids don't need a perfect parent. They just need you to point to the person who is perfect. The lie is, I'm not attractive. No one will love me. The truth is, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The lie is, I don't have what it takes. The truth is the same spirit that raised Jesus lives in me and I have everything that I need to accomplish God's purpose for my life. And finally, the lie is, I'll never overcome this anxiety. Well, friends, Philippians 4 says I can. It says I can. I think um, as we end end our, our conversation this week and, and uh, today specifically, I think it's just a healthy for us as a faith community to respond in worship, to just take what we've gathered in and, and to claim some things, to talk about who God is and what God does and how God moves and really just to meditate on what is good in his word. So we're going to sing a song here together that just celebrates all of those things. And so I want to invite you right now in your home or in your, you know, you can be crazy in your workplace or wherever you're at. Or if you just need to pause and close your eyes because you're in a park and you're going for a walk or wherever you are and just respond and worship with us. So would you stand where you are and join me in worship?